Welcome to View from the Pool. Today I'm delighted to welcome David Laverty, an old friend and colleague and band member actually, uh, to today's podcast. Uh, David, good morning to you. How are you? Good morning. I'm very well, thanks. Yeah, good to see you again. It's been a, it's been a while. Yeah, um, and you? I think it was Terminal 5, I believe. Yeah, I think uh, Cafe Nero about, well... Two or three years ago now. It must must have been. Must yeah. have been. So j- just to, to put our listeners into a little bit of a, give them a little bit of the background story. David, I have known for probably 20 odd years. Would that be fair to say? So in and around that, wouldn't it? Yeah. Makes us feel old. <laughs> yeah. And you actually were working for me as a lifeguard when was, you were was 17. Uh, yes. I think I started when I was about 17. So that's what, uh, 18 years ago. Yeah. Me. Now, tell me something. How did you, this is one of the questions I always ask everyone. Uh-huh. How did you get to actually do your lifeguard qualification? You know, what was the background that pushed you into that in the first place? So I started with my bronze medallion, which I suspect. Oh, right. Sort of yeah. So right, it, right back then. Um, so myself, my brother and another friend, Lorcan Quinn, uh, we did our bronze medallion together. And, and was that with the school? That was uh, that was done privately. Actually, that was right. We, we very did that good in Newry Swimming Pool. My mum got wind that there was a bronze medallion course yeah. uh, happening, so we did that every Sunday morning for uh, however many weeks it was. And then, as luck would have it, um, you know, not long after that, uh, you were recruiting for yeah. sort of some casual, uh, some casual right. labour to you know part time work. Yeah. Um, so obviously started the leisure center working for yourself. And then right. after, after a little while, then we, you know, we did the, more and more of the professional qualifications okay. eventually right up to the, the pool lifeguard. So you did your NPLQ then when you were working for the local authority. I didn't realize that, uh, because it's interesting that you, you, you say that about your mother. It's kind of a constant in a lot of these conversations I'm having that, you know, parents are, you know, have encouraged their children to, to go and do a bronze medallion or yeah. I don't even know if you can do the bronze anymore. It's actually a question I've asked quite a few times. Yeah. I'm a little bit but out of the it, loop at the minute. Yeah. Well, likewise, sort of yeah, yeah. you know, <laughs> likewise, not maybe as long out of the loop as you, but we, there's, there is that constant that, that kids were involved in swimming clubs, um, uh, and the, or their parents put them through, yeah. you know, had the foresight to say, you know what, uh, you should go and do a bronze medallion. And, yeah. you know, it, it is a great life skill though, isn't it? You know, even it, it, if you don't do anything with it. Do you know what? It, it's brilliant. And it's, you know, as a father of two young boys, it's definitely something mm. I will push my kids towards as yeah. well. Um, and I think what you said, you know, a lot of us definitely came up through the swimming club. So for one yeah. thing, it was probably the next obvious step, the logical step. Um, you know, we had friends that were doing it as well. So I think that helps. Um, yeah. You, you, your, your mother was quite active or is quite active in the yeah, swimming club. Yeah. Right? So, you know, and it's, um, you see, mom was always the, the early bird swim. So, you know, 7 a.m. Yeah. You know, yeah. even when we were we were no age <laughs> at all, we were myself yeah. and my brothers were in the pool at seven AM as well. So yeah, uh, dragged along. Dragged along, absolutely. And and did you ever swim competitively? Not really. I did a little bit. No. Um but I, I wouldn't say I was um I don't think I stayed with the swimming club long enough to get to get yeah. competitive, but yeah. Um it was more social really rather than yeah. competition. Yeah. So you did your bronze medallion in Uri. Uh-huh. Then you obviously applied for a job with the at the local swimming pool. Yes. And you were what six must have been sixteen or seventeen then. It would have been I think I did the bronze medallion when I was sixteen. And I think yeah. the I think the age then for the casuals was seventeen. Or maybe it was sixteen, I can't remember. Yeah, I think but it was I think sixteen, it yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well it must have been seventeen actually, because I remember mum and dad were having to drop me to the we're having to drop me to the leisure centre yeah. before I was driving, so it must have been six. Yeah. Um, well, that kind of that kind of opens leads me into quite nicely, you know, the next <laughs> stage because, you know, one of the, well, there's two things that kind of brought us together. Uh, one being music, yeah. But the other oddity, if you like, for me was the fact that you were a pilot, uh, or training yep. and flying at a very young age. Yep. Now, when when did that start with you? 
That for me, um, goodness, uh, that's something I've always always wanted to do. Uh, very fortunate right, okay. that I've, I've managed to do it. So I joined the the Aircraft Air Training Corps, mm-hmm. um, which is you know it's sort of run uh, alongside the RAF, just for sort of young yeah. people who are enthusiastic, want to get involved. Um, and it's not just about the flying, I mean, they do all sorts of activities. Mm-hmm. So I started with that when I was about 14. Um, right. And then it stuck with um, that, right? Um, was the connection there through the school again? Or was no, that something you did off your own bat? That was something I did off the own back. So we're, we're from Banbridge. I, mm-hmm. There was nothing specifically to... Uh, the ATC it was all AAC Army Cadet ACF yep. Army Cadet Force. I think it uh, still is actually. Yeah, yeah, I believe there's there's something there. Um, so I I went up and down to Lisbon once or twice a week, every day. Uh, sorry, every week um, for mm-hmm. you know until I was what, what I think it was nineteen when I left. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that was great. You know that, that opened many doors for me. Uh, gave me lots of good experience. It was good for my CV. Um, and then help me obviously get to get to where I am now. So now the next thing being, did you do your pilot's license very shortly after your seventeenth birthday? Would that be right? Or I seem to remember something like that. Yeah, so I, I was quite lucky that I um, I was offered lots of flying opportunities through the mm-hmm. ATC, and um, I was very fortunate to get a scholarship from both the Air Force and the Navy. So I, right. um, I didn't so, know that. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so as soon as I turned, um, I think I did my Air Force one when I was, uh, so I did my Navy one when I was 17 and I did my mm-hmm. Air Force one when I was 18. Um, so that allowed me to go solo and stuff. And, and I, I think I got about 20 hours each out of both of them. So halfway, if you like, uh, to the, yeah. to the license requirement. So, um, so very, very fortunate, very good. Uh, you know, it was, it was a very good experience for me. What age were you when you were allowed to fly solo? Uh, so I went solo in a glider when I was 16 and mm-hmm. then I went solo in an aircraft when I was, uh, 17. So that may. <laughs> now you see, there's a reason for me probing this, you see, because okay. the, well, the other the other side of how we we got together was obviously music and playing yep. in a band. Yep. Um, you being a drummer. Yep. <laughs> and you, it's a bit you of a know, sore subject to the minute. <laughs> well, <laughs> okay. Well, we can talk about that if you want. But first of all, I mean, it was it was a bit of fun, obviously, uh, but it was Absolutely. great fun. It uh, was. It was interesting very, very because you memories. were, yeah, uh, and and you were the young you were the young buck of the group i mean you were probably half the age well, you, of certainly you, me at that point <laughs> i think you guys in fact um, way more i mean i was i was 40 something yeah, and you were well, 17 um tom would have been obviously a bit younger in his late late yes, 20s maybe early 30s yeah. and, and mick, mick was in his 30s yeah um yeah. you guys showed me how it was thing. done so it's it's i like my training. well do you know it was it was a it was a man, it was a brilliant experience, but I think f- I, I I often think about it now. Whenever you know we had Mick Gregg, who was obviously a recording artist in New Zealand, had made CDs, you know, real LPs and all that sort of stuff, and there was us messing about. Uh, so I found it quite daunting playing with him because he was such a, a great musician. So yeah. I don't know how you felt. Um, I, I always remember one day in particular, I'm sort of sitting. He came to you and said, do you, do you mind if I go in the drum here? And saying, look, can you do that? Did it, did, is there anything this man can't do? Because he frequently <laughs> took the bass off me and said, no, no, I want you to do it this way. Whereas yeah. Tom was just a little, just did the thing in his own right. But the, <laughs> the, the reason why I was, I was leading up to that was because I have a really fond memory of your dad. Oh, yeah. And, and it's about, it was about band practice. And it was about... The time that you smashed the car. Oh God! I mean, yeah. Do you remember yeah. that? Uh, yes, all too well, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I remember talking to your dad. So I think <laughs> if you remember, we used to do quite a bit of practice in your front room, you know, That's overlooking right. Havelock yeah. Park, which was yeah. great. You know, I know we used other places, the old tech and the likes. That's right. The old town hall, but um, I just remember talking to your dad one day, and he telling me, "Look, no, David's not allowed out tonight." You know, he's. Um, <laughs> He smashed the car up. 
Yeah. Uh, he's gra- he's grounded. You know, it was something like that. And I, yeah. I remember looking at him. And, you, you know, your father's not that much older than me. Uh-huh. Um, but I remember looking at him and going, <laughs> hang on a wee minute here. You're grinding David. Yeah. Because he crashed the car. Yep. But you allow him to fly solo on airplanes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I he did. just kind of looked at me and went, oh, yeah, good, fair point, he said. It was something like that. And, yeah. and practice went ahead then. You know? Yeah. No, you see, it, when, that, when that same argument came from me, it didn't carry as much weight, unfortunately. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> yeah it was, I, I do remember that. It was very, yeah. very funny at the time. Yeah. So obviously the name, of, the name of our band, just for anyone who was interested, was The Cheesemakers. Yeah. Um, which was... Blessed uh, are. Blessed are. <laughs> Life of Brian and all that. Uh, but yeah, good good times, good times. Yeah, so really, really take, good times. Ah, listen. Well, you know on Facebook I post that picture every year on your birthday. <laughs> <laughs> because Yeah, cause was that your Baby 18th face. birthday? Yeah. That would have been or was that your, my... Yeah, it was your 18th. 19th? No, it, was, it was my 19th. I was 2004. Uh, uh, okay. Yeah, so I was born in... Yeah, so no, that would have been my 19th birthday. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the debut. Yeah. The debut At band. The council, council Christmas yep. dinner. Yeah, I still have a few photographs of that kicking about that was they were always wild days anyway you were lucky to be around in those days really for that experience because certainly there would be none of that now no, I think there was you a, know even five years later there was nothing like that going on that there, was a, gone. There, was a, there was a shift in uh, uh, momentum from that wasn't there there was yeah i think a shift in the world basically time to move on yeah there was very much that culture that we had in, in in that local authority that's for sure let's move it on to the next stage 17 18 you'd done your a levels i presume yeah um, so then it was at- yeah you're still at school uh yeah you then went off to college wasn't it or, 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 or uh, flying school let you yeah enlighten me yeah, so I um so basically all you know from uh, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, was still at school, um, mm-hmm. finished my levels, and then the plan was to, um, you know, get into one of the big pilot colleges one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but that that unfortunately takes a lot of time. So you have to there's lots of selection to go through. There's obviously considerable finance uh, yeah. to arrange and things like that. So that all took quite a lot of time so in the meantime obviously I'd left um finished my levels left the academy and I started at Queen's so I started uh I did one year of an economics and management degree so all the while right. I was doing that I was obviously still working in the pool yeah. um uh with, for you guys um getting the bus up and down every day to uni uh, all the while in parallel to that trying to obviously sort out the the pilot school um and then that finally for me, happened. I think I was offered a place um, back end of oh, sorry, middle of oh five for mm-hmm. starting the beginning of oh six. So then I had and tell six me, months of not being at uni but working full time on the pool. Yeah. You you had to apply for a number of colleges, did you? Yeah. So there was. Um, How does it work? So the, the, there's a few ways you can do it. Um, so there's a, there's a handful of, if you like, integrated colleges. So they, the mm-hmm. idea is you sort of start with no professional qualification, uh, you know, no mm-hmm. qualifications, not even the basic pilot's license. Okay. And you go through two years, or just under two years, you know, fairly intensive training. I think at, uh, in the whole two-year period, I had two weeks off, one of which was for Christmas. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it is really, really full on. Um, and the idea is then you pop out, uh, at the end of this course with the yes your professional qualifications but it's the absolute minimum you need to go to the airline and the idea then is you you sort of try and try and get a, a job with the airlines so there's a handful of these colleges around the world um the one in particular that i looked at was at oxford um mm-hmm. which is where i ended up going um so that's one way you can do it the, those colleges are all privately funded aren't they you, you've got to pay for them you know so you've got to put your money where your mouth is yeah, yeah, to, to some extent. So now that said, there are, or they do, or, or they did. I mean, this was obviously 06, mm, so just yesterday. right right <laughs> before the, yeah, you know, right before yeah. the... Uh, before the crash. Before the crash, exactly. So I believe, obviously, there was there was whole-scale change after that. But, um, mm. you know, a lot of them had schemes, you know, for instance, if you if you come to the bank manager and say, yes, I've been offered a place on this course, I've been got through the selection, I've done mm-hmm. X, Y, and Z, 
they'll say, yeah, we'll front you the cash. And obviously, mm-hmm. subject to these repayment terms. So that's exactly what mm-hmm. I did. And, um, yep. you know, my, my mom and dad very kindly uh, used uh, used their house as security. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so, so that was, you know, that, that was, that's one way of doing it. Obviously, other ways of doing it, you can, you know, the, the weekend flyers, so you do bit by bit, so you might get your private pilot's license that take you however long. Then you can add a, a night rating, add a multi-engine rating, add your instrument rating, and you build it up, build it up, and then you just build your experience up until the point where you're then equal to... To, uh, to your course. Yeah, exactly that, yeah. yeah. So where you match the people even into your course, and then you're you're in the same position. Or you can join the military, so Air Force, Navy, Army. Yeah. Um, so they're, they're kind yeah, of the, mu- the main three ways to do it. That must have been quite quite a bit of pressure on you for you know for someone so young when you think about you know i think about whenever i was at uni i think about um my kids at uni etc and y- you know studying 10 12 hours a week or less or whatever it is these days yeah. uh, and no pressure you know you can you know <laughs> let's go out in the last this weekend or let's do, do this know, or that or the other yeah a lot of people have asked me and do you know what i think that what it was robin i think i was i was very fortunate to get into this so young and I think because I didn't have that sort of um, life experience or never had any sort of financial pressure previously, I think I was actually a bit naive okay. to, the, to the financial repercussions. I was genuinely okay. blind yeah. to the, right. you know, I was just like, yeah, that's fine. If someone's given me a hundred grand, that's, that's perfectly normal for a 19 year old. Do you know what I mean? And it's, um, and obviously I, now at 35, I know it was anything but normal, but I was genuinely, I think, quite blind and ignorant of the the ramifications had it all gone a bit wrong so that wasn't the driver to keep working hard it was the love of flying obviously was the driver yeah exactly i mean don't get me wrong it's obviously it was in the back of my head but it it certainly i would consider a hundred grand loan very different now 35 to how i did when i was 18 19 you know well in 2004 5 6 100 grand in ireland would have bought you a very very nice house. Yes, maybe exactly. not where you are now, but <laughs> in, in, then you know that that that's it's a lot of money now. But in in twenty years yeah. ago, it was a hell of a lot more. Exactly. Well, yes, it, so. it's interesting that that wasn't, you know, that the driver that that didn't weigh you down and, and burden you too much that you were able to carry on. Yeah. So you too. I mean, I do remember seeing you very very rarely. You obviously. Yes. Did well in college, flying school, and straight straight in the yep straight in. Um, so I was I was very fortunate. That's one of the reasons for choosing the the, the the bigger schools, if you like, instead of going down the other routes. Is that typically over the years uh, the schools have developed a rapport with the airlines. Okay. So you know more often than not, it's it's quite common to at least get an interview. And if you get through the first stage, then obviously you, you carry on. And I was lucky. I, I got offered the interview and I just managed to keep getting through all the stages. Um, so, you know, joined uh, 2nd of October, 2007. So I've, I've been there, and I've been there since. Since. And so the colleges kind of have, are, are like a feeder school into some of the bigger yeah. airlines. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's just about getting that, that break, just getting that first interview. And you just yeah. sort of need links and, you know, you need to sort of roll, you need, um, I don't want to say roll in the right circles, but, you know, you just, it, it, it's about having, it's about the schools, having the connections and the contacts yeah. to put people Who forward. you know as well. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And, and, and speaking slowly so that everyone can understand you, of course. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can, I can, you know, I know I've met you a few times over the years, but because this is a podcast, I'm listening to your voice and, and it, it it definitely is softer and more anglicized if you like oh, it is because it probably has to be it it does and um you know we uh well i guess you know i've also married an english girl so yeah um, that's you know someone's gonna marry them so <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe i shouldn't say that maybe i shouldn't say that <laughs> no no you're fine um, but it's but no you know definitely you know it's a lot of what we are trained to do it's not just about stick and rudder it's about non-normal, you know, workload management. It's about obviously the technology, but a big, big part of what we do is communication and leadership and teamwork skills. And I have been told from day one that I am talking too fast, and I yeah. talk too fast. And I, you know, it's to the point now where, as an instructor myself, 
you know, I, I identified as an area for myself for continued improvement and development because I know I speak far too fast. So, yeah, so to answer your question, yes, over the years I have had to force myself to, to slow right down. Yeah, it's interesting for me because, as you know, I do most of my work in England now, England, Scotland, and I've been doing that 10, 12 years now, and I am very aware of having to slow down. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the kids, you know, they're older now, but they would still laugh at me when I'm on the phone here and talking to someone in England about the way I speak because it's so different from, from what I do. But whenever we decided to do this podcast, it was actually one of the things I was very aware of two yeah. two Irish lads talking together we could just go off like a train nobody nobody understand the word we're talking no, about exactly so when I go downstairs now my wife would be have you you've been speaking to Robin yeah. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. So, <laughs> slow down slowly slowly yeah, so. but, it, but it, it happens you know and it's you know if I, if I spend any length of time at home and I come back to work people would be like Dave I you know Christ yeah. I didn't get a word yeah. out Sort of you know, like, but equally, <laughs> when I when I haven't been home for a while, I'll go home and, and my brothers will take the piss out of me. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Oh, I, <laughs> Lordy Daw. Yes, it's like tip, tip top tea and medals. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, old, the old block and all that over the hill. What? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, but it's yeah. Now, how did it feel that first time you got to take a jet off the runway? Then it's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. It's um, so one of the, it wasn't, there was no fear factor, was there? It was just no, no, no. So here we go. The, interestingly, what um, the so whenever you pop out of pilot school, obviously you've got the bare mm-hmm. minimum. You then have yeah. to go through um, loads more training with the airline, and that's called mm-hmm. a type rating. So that then trains you to fly a specific type of airplane. Yeah. So my first type was an Airbus, an A320. So the okay. same sort of things that uh, EasyJet fly, that sort of series. Yep. Um, so that takes a couple of months. And one of the best bits of that is once you get to the end of that course, you do all the grand school, all the simulators, mm-hmm. um, you then basically get sent off to a very quiet airport, big, mm-hmm. massive runway, you and all your friends from pilot school, uh, <laughs> and two very, very experienced yeah. training captains. Okay. And that's called your base training. And the idea is right. you um, you have to demonstrate that you can do six minimum of six takeoffs and landings safely. And you basically take off what we call a circuit. So you take off, you level off very low level, come back down the other side of the runway, line yourself up with the runway and land. And you do that consecutively six times. Okay. And that was to the day I died, one of the more just an, a surreal experience. Um, so the first time I actually ever touched a jet, um, there was four of us going down. I was supposed to go last. And the guy that was supposed mm-hmm. to go first was just shitting himself. He was really just a bag <laughs> of nerves. So I said, this is grand. You know, it's, um, I'm not due to go Move for over. another couple of hours. That's, it was fine. You know, I'll just sit down the back. So, so I took myself off to the toilet, uh, right down the back of the plane. This plane's completely empty. Uh, unbeknown to me, the training captains looked at this guy, saw how nervous he was. I tell you what, we'll swap Billy and Dave around. Yeah. So I'm sitting there on the toilet at the back of this empty airplane, and he just says over the PA, he says, Dave, actually, we're going to put you in first. Would you mind? Just sign like, oh, oh my You're God, in the right I place. Just, I just, right, you know, whatever. Run all the way up through the length of this airplane, jump into the cockpit, and then before I know it, I'm just sitting there, and there's this runway in front of me. So the first time I actually got to touch the jet was just in this big, empty old, um, this big, empty air, airfield in the middle of France. Um, set it down, did a good job put the power on again, took off and just did that consecutively six times. Uh, and it was brilliant. And it's, it was just the best, best experience. An everlasting memory then. Yeah, it is. And then the, so that's, that's what you call your base training. And then once you mm. provided that goes well, you then move it. Well, here's the question. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I, I like the way you said, uh, you know, take off and land consecutively, successfully six times. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> this maybe isn't something the general public want to hear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I presume by uh, a failure is having to, you know, pull pull back or pull up and not actually yeah. land. Because yeah. so you have to take off, I presume. You don't yes. really abort those too often, do you? No, no, it's, it's quite a rejected takeoff. No, so I mean, so it is. It is a maneuver, obviously, we train for um, on the landing side of thing. It's just you know, when you're a brand new cadet 
what this the guy in the seat beside you, so very very experienced um, training standards captains. Um, they are looking for a right technique, put it in the down in the right place, right speed. They not don't care about smoothness. They're just looking for safe, consistent technique, and that's what it's all about. Um, yeah, so you can refine those skills as as exactly. experience, obviously. Yeah, yeah, and you know, every now and then, it's some people have a few issues. You know, it might be firm, so they haven't flared. That's they haven't raised the nose enough. It might be off the center line. It might be too short, so um, they might get high in the profile, so they put the power on and climb up again before they even touch to a go around. Um, so it's not uncommon at that stage, and given how inexperienced the, the, you know, the, the, the cadets are, that some people need a wee bit more extra training. And um, so these guys, these these trainers, these steely-eyed missile men, <laughs> I mean, they, they must have ice running through their veins, because to me that would be worse than being a driving instructor. Balls of steel. And it's worse that they've, they, they have signed for the, the aircraft. So their name, so they are responsible for it. So they're letting you. It's it's up to them basically how much rope they want to give you. You know, and it's there's a there's a there's a point where, you know, they need to learn from their mistakes. And if they get high in the profile, well, can they correct? Have they corrected enough? And there'll come a point where they might just need to take over. I need to get them out of this mess and do the landing, or just take control and, and do the go around. Um, is is that something you aspire to? You know, would you like to do? do what those guys did for you absolutely so i'm so i i actually am an instructor um at the minute so but i'm a i'm a co-pilot so we have so, so the way it works so you right hang on let before we get to that let's just take a step back so one you you done that you you that initial takeoff etc and then you obviously <laughs> move forward to uh, you, you do you get allocated a route there? You know, after you've finished your training, yeah. What so happens? That, so that, How long so does that your, process take? Sorry, um, from joining the airline to yeah, the passengers. No, yeah, yeah. Um, so you'll that probably takes about three months, and then okay, right. Then you'll spend another month with passengers, but with a training captain and a safety okay. pilot. Yeah. So the, the, there would be three of you up the front. So and then, okay. Yeah. So that's. Yes, you're flying on the line on active routes with obviously full fare paying passengers. It's kind of like um, being an R driver, is it? Yeah, well, kind of. You're still under training. Um, you yeah. Know, still, okay. You know, you're, you're still very much um, learning the job, and then at the end of that period, so this is now what four months. You then have a line check, and that's to make sure you're you're okay, um, and then. Provided that goes okay, you are spat out two very shiny stripes on your shoulder, and you are the most junior co-pilot in the fleet. So, so I did mine in Christmas Eve, uh, two thousand and seven, day after your birthday. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. So it was what uh, that was what October, November, December. So three months that was for me. Yeah. Um. What, what would that rank be? What were you called then? First you know, off, officially what you were called, not what, <laughs> uh, <laughs> not so what others called you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so that's that's FO first officer. So that's two two stripes. Sure. Yeah, and that that put that puts you in the loop then. Yeah. So you're just a a, a normal uh, what we call a line first officer. So just fully qualified, no restrictions. Um, you're just a fully fully qualified co-pilot. And then, how long do you? I mean, your 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 rank now is senior flight officer. Is that correct? Uh, senior first officer. Yes, that's senior first officer. My apologies. Yeah. My yeah, apologies. And how long does it take you to to get to that? How many? Um, is it? Does that work on flying hours, or does it work on? It's, how does that if, work? Every airline's different. So performance in the simulator, because uh, we we get checked every six months um, in the sim. You know, you have a line check uh, once a year. Um. So every everybody does it slightly different, um, but the big one then is obviously when you come up for a command, yeah, um, you move the four stripes. So that's that's a whole uh, different ball game. Different ball game. That's a really really difficult course, an intense mm-hmm. course. That's back to the sim. Lots of non-normal management, lots of emergencies to deal with, um, and then you spend. A, and of course, that's a seat change as well because yeah. co-pilot's always sitting right, yeah, captain's always right, sitting yeah. left. So yep. you have to revalidate your qualifications to oh, fly course, with your left yeah. hands. Um, so yeah. that's a trip to the sim. Um, 
And is that funded? You don't yes, have yeah. to say, I want to be a skipper. I'm going to have to no, come up with no, another 100 no. grand. No, no, no. It's, it's seniority based, so time time spent in the company. Okay. And then obviously you have to get through the course as well. So not everybody yeah. passes the course. Yeah. So, so pre-COVID, I'm presuming that that was your aspiration, obviously, to, 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 to get a left-hand seat. Yeah, so I, I was quite lucky. So I, I started um, obviously in the right seat of the Airbus. So I flew that for seven years um and always wanted to fly the 747 yeah so i remember you the, saying that yeah actually. so from the from the moment i joined the company i just put my name down on the you know on the transfer every and week every week so, you know, Lovely yeah. again. <laughs> so <laughs> we ever get the hint yeah. <laughs> um, so we we have um we have a transfer window if you like for want of a better word uh opens up every year so i just every year i just put my put my name down I uh, didn't ask for anything else. Uh, and after about yeah. sort of five years in the company, you have the seniority to go off to other long-haul fleets. So some of my friends went off to the 777, some went off to the 380 because that had just come in, so on and so forth. So I stayed longer on short mm-hmm. haul, holding out for this 747 course. <laughs> 747. And, just, and, and eventually after seven years on short haul, I thought, you know what, I just I fancy a change. So I, I, I put everything down. So I put Jumbo, obviously, 777, 380, and I ended up on the 777. So that's kind of how I ended up on the trip, and I've been on that now for, uh, what, almost seven years as well. Um, so you never got the 747? Never got to fly it, no. And um, now you won't? I know I won't because it's gone. Um, I was lucky, though, that... So I've done a few other bits and pieces. So as a co-pilot um, on the triple, we, uh, we have co-pilot instructors... So people who spe- who uh, train, teach, and obviously examine in the simulator. So I've been doing that for the last four years. Right, because um, that's that's where where I stopped you earlier on the training side of things. That you are now training other pilots. Uh-huh. Was that something that you put yourself forward for as well? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it was. So, well, it's not something I had to fund, if, if, if that's what you're asking, but it's... No, no, I just wanted know, to know, like, were you picked or was it something you went, this is a natural progression for me, because oh, it's see, good from a CV and it's going to take me to the left seat eventually. Yeah, so with um, with that, it's the company, obviously, uh, they, they said, like, we're recruiting uh, training mm. co-pilots. Um, okay. I thought, yeah, I'd really like to do it, so I applied and went through selection and was lucky enough then to get through the, the course as well, the, the trainer training. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's been good. It's That must be a lot of that, as you say, is is not just, a, to use your words, a stick and rudder. It's a lot about your not only man management skills, but also yeah. the skills to, to read people. Yes. So I would, I would uh, quite confidently say 95% of our command failures are not through stick and rudder. They're for okay. workload management, uh, mm-hmm. team skills, uh, situational awareness, time management, or yeah. knowledge and application of procedures. Um, so, you know, they just haven't read the books or they've read the books, they've got the theory in their head, but they can't apply it under pressure. Yeah. Um, so that's probably, it's very, very rarely about physically flying the airplane that people struggle. It's all the, the non-tech skills. Uh, yeah, and it's and I suppose points of failure are always or tend to be an accumulation of A on top of B and top of C and yeah. top of D, and then that's when yeah. catastrophic failure uh, happens. Absolutely. You know, the, yeah, because there's, there's the two things that I always think about when flying, and and you'll understand where I'm coming from in a minute. One was obviously, obviously, it's not obvious. One was the Tenerife situation. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, and that was down to. The, the hierarchy that was about yeah. in, in those days teamwork leadership and teamwork there's a klm and the um there's the two jumbos yeah the dutch captain just said i'm not having this yeah, <laughs> yeah. i'm bigger than him and Off that was it yeah, yeah. And, and that certainly changed probably not just the airline industry as far as uh, hierarchy and command etc goes it probably changed a whole lot of things across the world but absolutely the other thing which, which is fun for me talking to you today <laughs> and a few people that that uh, know me and and have been involved in my my lifeguard training. Uh-huh. I presume you. Well, I I'm, I know you would know the film Sully. Yes. Um. And we, I use this quite a lot in my training. I have actually mm-hmm. show a clip from the film mm-hmm. in my lifeguard training. Mm-hmm. Now, 
for the second time this month, I'm going to publicly acknowledge that this came from someone else, a girl called Helen Metcalf, who has done a podcast or two with me, and she threw this at me at one point, and it, it was sort of a, cl- a conglomeration of, of discussions, etc. But the whole thing that we had talked about it, with lifeguards is that when a, an incident happens for a lifeguard, it happens, it bang, it happens right in front of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a as a, a first responder, as an as an you know part of the emergency service, if you want to call it that, lifeguards are one of the few responders in the world that don't have any pre warning of what's going to happen. Uh, and the example I always use, just and um, there'll be people have heard this before, but I always say, for example, a fireman, his bipper goes off, he knows he's got to have to go and deal with the fire. He gets to this down to the station, he's pulling his gear on, and somebody said, "Oh, you've got uh, it's a fire, it's out in the sticks. There's a lady trapped in the first floor, yeah. and her kids so are, you know, under the bed." So he's prepared, and he yeah. knows what he's got. He knows what he's coming. Um, and the bit, whereas a lifeguard, when something happens in front of you. There's no pre-warning at all. Someone has a heart attack, bang, down, they go under the water. Because nobody, very few drown now because they've got out of their depth in a public pool. It's usually a medical event beforehand. And what, what Helen had watched this film, as had I, and, but she made the connection about the human factor whenever uh, the, the captain said... The decision-making? Uh, uh, yeah, about the bird strike. You know, whenever they, they ran it through the simulators, or as my mate calls it, the stimulators... When they ran, when they ran it through the simulators, it was like bang, bird strike, right? Let's head off to LaGuardia or whatever. Yeah. And what hadn't been allowed was the human factor, you know. And I think his line in the film was, "Let's get, can we get real here?" And the other line that I have stolen is, you know, this is not a video game, and we use that a lot in in what we talk about. And, And that that was, you know, that's why it was as interesting for me to chat to you today as well about. Yeah. You know, the pilots and, and, and about your training. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I'm sure from that incident that that's something else that's taken into account now that there is this human factor. Affect me, what was that? Yeah. <laughs> is this really happening? Honestly, the, the focus, the shift in our industry um, over the last 20 years um, it towards what we call non-tech training, so CRM, career resource management, is huge. It, you know, really? 30, 40, you know, more years ago, this just didn't exist. And you had, unfortunately, it took accidents like the Tenerife disaster, uh, even Kegworth to some extent. Yeah. Um, to to actually appreciate it, you know, perfectly serviceable aircraft are getting flown into the side of the hills or a lot of lives are being lost for no other reason other than the two guys up the front couldn't sort their shit out. And there was absolutely nothing wrong with the airplane. Do you know what I mean? And it's... Um, and it's it is unfortunate reality. It takes big events like that to to change the way we do things. And you know the 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 the, the miracle and the Hudson is a great example of trying to make decisions under pressure. And yeah, because you, you know, can't train for that shit, can you? I mean, that's just not. <laughs> there's, there's there's barriers you can put in place to stop your brain making impulsive decisions. Uh, and that's very much what we what we train our pilots to do. Um, you know we. We have a we use an analogy, um, you know, and, and that is that you know inside everyone's head there's a, when we when we're put under pressure and we feel the adrenaline, there's like a chimp in our brain and it just wants to get out and start fixing things. Mm-hmm. But more often than not, as soon as you let the chimp out of that cage, it'll get worse before it gets better because they haven't taken time to process what they're looking at. They haven't had time to collect their thoughts, use their experience, and make an informed decision. So, and it's, and more often than not, when we see impulsive behavior in the simulator uh, and people acting quickly and irrationally, it nine times out of 10 makes the situation considerably worse. Can you train that out of people? Or is that just a natural thing that, you know, some people are like that and untrainable? (laughs) I'm sure there are some people who are untrainable. Yeah, yeah, there's a few out there. Um, You can but generally speaking, can, generally speaking, the, you can the trick train that is, out. The issue is always, there's always a, a sense of perceived time pressure. People think they have to act immediately. Um, like granted, okay, when if somebody's drowning in front of you, it might, yes, there probably is slightly more time pressure. But certainly in my line of work, um, we nine times out of ten, we we always have more time uh, to deal with it than we than we realise. And you just taking that time to. 
um, you know, fly the aircraft first and foremost. Okay, assess. You know, okay, yeah, is it engaged? Yeah. What's my lateral mode? What's my vertical mode? What's the auto throttle doing? So I'm safe. So whatever has happened, whatever has failed, the most important thing is that we're still flying through the sky quite safely, quite comfortably, right? Am I, so that's what we call ANC, Aviate, Navigate, Communicate. Um, navigate, am I flying towards a mountain? Have I taken off somewhere in a terrain-critical environment and I need to fly an emergency turn? Am I on a departure route? Am I on arrival route? Et cetera, et cetera. Communicate, well, does my mate in the cockpit know what's happening? Have we got the same mental model, you know, like Kegworth, for, for example? Um you know, do we need to tell our traffic? Yeah. Do well, we've heard something, we can smell something, feel something. We've got no indication. Okay, well, what can the crew see behind us? So it's so we have little acronyms like that, and just by doing that slows us down. And it's even if it only takes 10 or 15 seconds, it makes a world of difference. And it just puts that impulsive behavior uh, to bed for a second and allow you just to gather your thoughts. Yeah, I've been reading quite a bit about stuff like that recently, I must admit. And it, it is about that taking that 30 seconds just to... It's take time to assess time. I know it's different for a lifeguard, but it's, you know, it's, in, it's nearly in anything. You know, you're up the mountains and you get into difficulty. It isn't just going to disappear in front of you. You, you, you assess. And, and I use that a lot when I'm sailing, actually. Whenever you're in a situation, sailing boats inherently move quite slowly but you can get into situations sometimes when you've got to make very very quick decisions man overboards and all that sort of stuff but generally speaking it's not about making an impulsive decision it's about assessing right this is where we are we're still afloat as you say yeah (laughs) i I know where i am have i I hit a rock no i'm not thinking okay fine so let's let's take time and and analyze and work work the problem i suppose to use the old nasa analogy Absolutely, it's you know yeah. it is taking time to assess time, and by doing that, that makes time, and it just lets you gather your thoughts, and it usually, as I say, it nearly always leads to a more um, optimal, a favourable uh, outcome, favourable <laughs> outcome, you know, informed decision making, um, better workload management, and ultimately keeps your situational awareness of what's going on around you, you know, higher. But so. you mentioned Kegworth, and that, that always sticks in my head, A, because I fly in the East Mids quite a lot now, and, and drive past that particular part on the motorway. But it always springs to mind for me because uh, I was playing rugby that day in Carrickfergus Rugby Club, and one of the guys that I played rugby with, his girlfriend was cabin crew. Now, she wasn't on right. the flight, but I just remember the whole the panic that, that set in with him and then also all tuning in the television etc the natural reaction was a bloody thing how can you have two air you know engines that fail etc 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 yeah yeah yeah, and yeah of course as time show, showed us eventually yeah, well, it, it we, was just a miscommunication yeah, and i, yeah, I think exactly. am i right in saying it was one actually did fail but they shut the wrong one down and yeah, that's yeah it. so and it was there was all sort of what we call the holes in the Swiss cheese, and it's all all the errors, the holes, and they all lined up perfectly. Um, so you had it was a, at the time it was a seven three seven four hundred, uh, brand new airplane, um, and historically, you know, call you know pilots are simple creatures. We like the left hand instruments on the left side of the cockpit and the right engine on the right hand side. Yeah, and they had a series of, and it wasn't quite like that. You know, they had the the, the display in front of the pilots was, was a little bit new, was a little bit different. They hadn't been given much training in it. So it was a little bit unfamiliar to them. Um, they had an indication in the cockpit that one engine had failed or was in the process of failing. This, I forget which way around it was, but say, for example, it was the left. But, of course, the camera crew saw the flames and the sparks and the vibration on the right. Pilots convinced it's the left. Crew knows the right. Didn't speak to each other. They didn't ask. And, of course, the left was shut down. And then on final approach, they, it's a miracle they got as far as they did on the engine that was failing. They went to throttle up slightly on final approach on what they thought was the good engine. Obviously, it was the one that was failed. And then the engine obviously just gave up. So now they've got one engine shut down and one that's just completely failed. And That was it. The glide path didn't take them in. Yeah. No, exactly. exactly. And is that is that one of those um, test cases, if you like, that is used in every training college now? Yeah, absolutely. It is, and it's like I said to you previously. You know, the, 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 our our industry over history is littered with 
events where it, it took or it takes a really unfortunate accident um, to force change. Uh, Kegworth was one of them. Tenerife was one of them. You know, as I say, there's there's been countless examples. Concord. Over history. Concord, yeah, absolutely. You know, where perfectly, uh, you know, and, 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 well, and it, it was a damaged aircraft, obviously, to Concord. Yeah, so but the, the, the was technical, Concord yep. was technical, but like the yep. Tenerife, they were perfectly serviceable. Oh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. And it's, and that was, you know, anything technical removed, it was all human factors, be it uh, teamwork skills, be it poor workload management, be it uh, impulsive behavior, uh, poor decision making. Um, and that's, as I said, that's why I spend the bulk of my time. Training people in the, the non-tech skills, you know, not not the stick and not the stick and rudder. I think we'll have to get you involved in a little bit of lifeguard training with me someday. Go for it! I'd love <laughs> yeah. to find it. <laughs> you know, because it is a lot of. Yeah, it is all about exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, uh, of, and it's a lot of it's psychological because the brain craves instant. It needs to resolve the situation. You know, I think lifeguards and and, and pilots are we're cut from the same cloth. You know, we, we want to help react. We're, we're proactive people. We like to fix things. Um, and it's our brain wants to resolve the situation immediately and fix it. But actually it's, it, and it's, it's, that's just the way we're programmed. But actually if we just force ourselves to slow down and just assess it properly, it might, it might lead to a, you know, a more optimal, a better outcome. Now better outcome. To, to get on to the COVID, as it's called oh, yes. in our house, the COVID. Yeah. Um, the C word. Yeah. 12 months ago, I was actually, I, I was actually on a flight uh, on the 14th, I think it was the 14th of March, getting ready to fly to Canaries to go and do my Yachtmasters um, oh, exam out there. And to cut a very long story short, the, the, the instructor in the Canaries said, get off the flight because the Spanish ports are going to close. And on Monday, uh, and mm-hmm. so we did. We get That's off. That's right. They they went into lockdown quite quickly. Yeah, they went into lockdown really yeah. quickly. And I was just today. I was talking about this. You know, that's nearly a year ago. First um, yeah. of February last. You know, this time last year we were gearing up. Zach and the boys, Anna's number, were playing a gig in the black box, a sellout gig, and we had no clue what was coming. Nothing. You know. No. no you know. We'd heard about this thing in China. And, and that yeah. was it. What about you in the airline industry? When did you first start thinking, you know what, this is going to change things? Yeah. It, um, so a bit like you, really. I remember, I remember reading an article on it just before Christmas last year. Mm-hmm. And yeah. thinking, you know what, it doesn't sound, you know, it doesn't sound particularly great. Doesn't sound good. Um, yeah. <laughs> never in my wildest dreams did I think it would yeah. obviously turn into what it, what it has. Um, so I think for me, when it first um, rung home, um, I was asked to go to Havana in March mm-hmm. on St. Patrick's Day, actually, and it was to rescue um, 600 uh, cruise ship passengers. And there'd been an outbreak mm-hmm. of COVID in the ship and some in the Caribbean, uh, and they'd been refused entry into all the usual places, you know, Miami, St. Lucia, Barbados, Nassau, mm-hmm. and that sort of stuff. But finally, the Cubans said, yeah, we'll take you as long as you pay us. You know, X amount. Yeah. So, yeah. so they're allowed to talk, and then the next thing was the foreign office said, "Look, we want you to send three triple sevens down to Havana uh, and pick these guys up." And I think when we got involved in that project, and you see the various countries that weren't permitting these people to come in, mm-hmm. and when the passengers got on board, they were in tears or thanking us because they'd been, you know, they were on a, a two week cruise. Yeah. Yeah, they were there for a month. Two weeks. They <laughs> yeah. then, exactly. They then have yeah. another two weeks of sort of trying to find somewhere to dock and land, and they they yeah. just had a terrible time. And I think, you know, when we got back from that trip, um, and I was doing a little bit of work in the office at the time as well, so I was a nine to fiver, um, and we were we were told to go home. I said we were just working from home, and then I think really? that so- for me was a little light bulb moment. You think, Do you know, what, hang yeah. on, this is this is serious, and then. Very shortly afterwards, we closed our simulator hole. Really? So we so we then obviously had the problem of people who were training on who converting onto trip seven fell behind. The pilots who are already online coming in for their six monthly checks fell behind. Then of course we started operating a ten percent schedule. 
Um, was it as 90, 10%? So you went from yeah. 100 to 10% just like that? Yeah, well, within, in a very short space of time. I think, and it's still only about 15, 20% now. So then, of course, you have all sorts of recency issues. So we have to do so many numbers of takeoffs and landings over a certain period of time. So we see that suddenly became an issue. And, of course, we couldn't bring them into the simulator. So they weren't getting the recency on the line because we weren't physically flying. And we couldn't bring them into the simulator because we had to close the simulator. So that created one almighty headache for us. Um, and then the CAA got involved. We were given extensions and they changed the law and the rules, that kind of stuff. Um, so that's- And where, where are you now with that as far as... And the reason I ask is because lifeguards, strangely, are in the same position because pools are closed. They can't get in to do their training hours now. Yeah. I know it's very different yeah. from training as a pilot and keeping your pilot skills yeah. up, but well, no, it's, no, the, the, it, the it is the same. Yeah, yeah, the parallels absolutely. are there. You're, you, that's, yeah. the, that's a good word. So how, how, how is your industry coping with that? Well, we've, um, thankfully, this time around, we've kept the simulator hall open. So we, okay. we did an awful lot of work uh, back end of last year, middle to back end of last year, just to get everybody caught up. Um, you know, everybody stepped up um, to get everyone back to where they needed to be. Um, we, from a training point of view, as I say, we've been lucky we've kept the sims open. So that has that's probably saved us um, because I, I really don't know how we would have done it because we've had the most we've we've had all the extensions and all the alleviations we're going to get from the CAA. Um, but you know we we've had to take you know precautions like everyone else of so face mask, PPE, uh, women in scenery, so all that good stuff. Um, and I think you know we we've had to get quite uh, quite creative with our training as well. So we run. A weekly skill bite sessions so the pilots can log online and we'll have one of our tr- trainers or instructors going through uh, just a random topic so it could be uh, fuel policy uh, you know uh, wind shear uh, GPWS anything like that so so we've had to get quite creative to think outside the box to keep people engaged that's really um, really interesting keep, you know so it's, it's 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 been an interesting sort of year and it's it was something that we were skeptical about i mean you know mm-hmm. remote learning from home for an airline yeah I think, really well you know how does that work but actually the the uptake has been brilliant uh, the feedback has been very good um so it's you know we've, we've had a we've had a bit of a win an unexpected win there to be honest is that like zoom zoom sessions or a webinar or yeah. something like that uh, where you've got face to face with like 10 of you on a group or something yeah well we um so I did one just before Christmas and we had 160. Whoa. So it, it yeah. literally is. So you pick, there's a topic and that's really yeah. what the whole session's it, on. Yeah, exactly. That's we, we really, and, really good. Yeah. We, we try and, um, uh, you know, we make it quite interesting. So when I was part of my role in the office, uh, whilst I never got to fly the 747, I was on the 747 training management team. Right. So it was about as close as I got. To yeah. Um, so one of my roles was sort of, well, how am I, how am I going to keep these guys sitting at home? They know their aircraft is going to the scrapyard. Um, they're probably not going to get recourse onto a new aircraft type for at least another year, two years. How do I keep them engaged? I don't want them sitting at home for a year, switching off, de-skilling themselves, demotivated, disengaged. Um, so we just, yeah, we thought, well, let's pick something that is common to all fleets, not just the 747. So, you know, as I say, the fuel policy, the various company procedures, load sheets, load and balance, all that kind of stuff. I said, look, let's just do it, guys. And they thought, do you know what? I haven't seen that for some of these guys have been flying for 30 years. No one has gone through that since I joined the company 30 years ago. So it's just a useful yeah. refresher. Um, so as I say, the feedback the feedback has been good. You know, we, we try and beef it up with updates from management, uh, updates from the, the manpower planning team. And in other words, the people who plan the, the training courses, because everybody wants to know when when am I getting my triple seven course? When am I, you know? Um, so we just beef it up, and it, to date, it's as I say, it, it, it's been a, an unexpected win. It's the feedback has been excellent. You had that, so that was experience that you had been developing from before COVID hit. Then that you were able yeah. just to transfer across. Yeah. That's called being in the right place at the right time. <laughs> yeah, it's, I've been very yeah, I've been, yeah. I've been very lucky. Um, so that's it's you know that that all as of a month ago, just before Christmas. So that so that project work has now stopped. There was um, so we've now that the jumbo was gone, 
Um, I'm sort of back to being a, a triple seven trainer. Um, so it's nice. So I sort of moved on, did it for 18 months, you know, feather in my cap. And, um, Excellent. And are yeah. you getting any real flying now? Well, yeah, bit. you're you're going to Houston tomorrow. You said yes. I'm off to Houston tomorrow yeah. morning. Yeah. Um, so I've got. I went to went to Antigua on New Year's Day, uh, which was nice. And which was nice. Did you get a layover then? Is that what they call it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we did. So yeah. but, well, it was actually it was supposed to be Punta Cana, but the Dominican Republic authorities won't let any um, foreigners in, right? Okay, including aircrew. So okay. the trip was so the trip was Gatwick, Antigua, spend the night in Antigua and then the following evening uh go from Antigua to Punta Cana, pick up holidaymakers who were trying to get home. Yeah. Uh, so we we flew empty to Antigua, empty to Punta Cana, and then picked up two hundred people and flew them back to Gatwick and got back in on the third of January. Uh, and then yeah, so that that was nice. I've been doing a little bit of work in the simulator, I was in there yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then off as you say, off to Houston first thing tomorrow morning. Trump doesn't close the borders. <laughs> no, yeah. Well, this is true. I, I, I was going to ask you, when do you think this will all be over? But that's the sort of question everybody's asking. So would none of us really know? <laughs> no, it, that said, though, I think there is light at the end of the tunnel this time. You know, yes, 12 months ago, we never thought we'd been in this position. But that said, 12 months ago, we didn't know an awful lot about this virus. I think, uh, you know, we there was no vaccine. Um, lockdown really was... You know, nobody knew really what to expect. Whereas I think, you know, it's no longer new. It's almost become the new norm. So hopefully people will just follow the rules and the R rate will go down. We've got the vaccination. Um, so I, you're I think... Ba- yeah, you're based in I'm, Windsor, isn't it? You're, you live... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So what, what do you like? Are you just like... I know the eastern side of London was worse for a while, but I think it's the whole... The whole country now, isn't it? <laughs> it is, yeah, it is. So the whole, so we we had these, um, you know, the tiers. I think, yeah, um, yeah. So we were in whatever it was you tier t- two, tier two for yeah, because I kept noticing that Heathrow and that side of the of the city was was a lower tier than than elsewhere. Yeah, you know, I've done yeah, a, a yeah. few flights, um, which actually I think that. That's one of the things you hear about, and I was going to ask you about was you know, people go, oh, you you know, flying on a plane and you're sitting with all those people, and it's the same air you're breathing for four hours. You know, just put that myth to bed for me. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. So the air, it, whilst bits and parts of the air are recycled, mm-hmm. you know, it is heavily, heavily filtered. Uh, a considerable chunk of the air is actually thrown overboard, and fresh air is brought in as well. Yeah. There is. So the air. The air in an aircraft moves from front to back, so it's constantly yeah. moving. Um, so it's, you know, the, the remaining air that isn't thrown on board then goes through these HEPA filters. Mm-hmm. So it is, yeah, it is not the case of just breathing yeah. someone's you, germs. and It's safer, safer than an office, I would guess. Much safer. Yeah. Much safer. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So it is so, better yeah. to sit at the front then because it's all going... Yeah, to, to the so after there, there's a natural, there's a natural, <laughs> not not enough to feel it blown in your face, yeah, obviously, but yeah, there's yeah, a natural, yeah. there's a natural airflow from front, uh, front to rear. So you guys are obviously very comfortable, you know, in, in that environment now because you, you, what you've just told me, and I presume your, your cabin crew, all well trained, and it must it must have been quite, you know, I I came home from Turkey and there was a couple of idiots, I'll just call them that who, you know, wouldn't wear face masks and stuff like that and then yeah. wouldn't wear them covering their nose. And, you know, and you've seen stuff on YouTube or Instagram or whatever about some of these lugs causing absolute yeah. mayhem over a mask. You know, it must it must have nearly been worse than alcohol on board at one point. It's, there's, I, I have a theory. <laughs> Rationale, when people, get, when, people, when people get near an airport, something funny just happens. Yeah. And I don't yeah. know what it is. It's like people sitting there sinking the pints at 5 a.m. Yeah. And think, well, what? <laughs> just glad the Starbucks is open. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. it's, yeah. I don't know, but just common sense is the least common of all senses. But in particular, in an airplane, it seems to go out the window. Yeah. Um, I, you know, look, everyone's an expert, everyone has an opinion. Oh. Um, <laughs> I think all I would say is that you know a considerable a considerable amount of research and development and testing has gone on behind uh, the scenes, and that's you know that's why the rules and the procedures are the way they are. Um, but you're just never going to win with some people. Though. 
No, I, no. I certainly have had, you know, I, I was that soldier, you know, we're going on holiday, 3 a.m. Yeah. in the morning. Well, we have, well, I need it. You have to have a beer, you know, or is it gin and tonic, you know? That. I mean, I'm, I'm not sitting here on my high horse. I mean, I've definitely been that person, but yeah, it's I am sure you have. <laughs> but I think it's certainly for me, when I became a, a frequent flyer, uh, I just very, very quickly, I caught on and go, what your are those guys doing? Quickly. Yeah. You know, because yeah, yeah. you're there, you know, twice, three, four times a week. Yeah. And you go, well, I, I joke, Robin, you, you, were, you spend more time on airplanes than I do. <laughs> Sitting in you bloody really airports. So, <laughs> exactly. Not anymore, so you, thankfully. You know, yeah, so, well, you know, you, you, you see it, you've seen it firsthand. So. Uh, well, it's, it's you know. and I'm guessing, you know, I, I always love telling the story about, you know, I did I did a job in Norway in Lillehammer. And right. it was, uh, oh, Lily Hammer, that must have been amazing. You know, have you seen the program, Lily Hammer? No. Um, you know, the, uh, the, the, I said, I know the Olympic Games were there at one point. And, and what was it like? And I went, well, do you know what? I, I sat in the airport, I got on a plane, I got off the other side, I got in a car, I drove in a motorway, I went to Lily Hammer. Yes, there was a bit of snow. I could see the ski slope, but the 25 meter pool was exactly the same as the 25 meter pool in Bambridge. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's, I'm guessing airports are like that for you too. So, a, you know, 3,000 meter runway, 3,000 meters concrete is exactly the same. Yeah, no matter yeah what we wherever it is. So. And, and swimming pools yeah. the same. You know, I've been to most of the cities in, in the UK now. And you know, people say, oh, Canterbury's beautiful, isn't it? And I go, I don't know. <laughs> I can tell you what the swimming pool <laughs> yeah. looks like. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the way I was like, well, yeah, yeah. It was like it's got an ILS on the runway. I could tell you that yeah. much. But yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, <laughs> the, the glamour of it all, you know. No, it's not when yeah. you're sitting spending three hours in Starbucks. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think there is there. It is definitely you know. Don't get me wrong, you know, and I think you're probably the same. There's, there's. We love to travel, and there's. Yeah. You know, we love to see the world and and, and do different things, and it's you know we romanticise it, but you know there are times when the reality is very different. It can be very lonely. Yeah. You yeah. Know? It's, oh, absolutely. I, I, I have three suitcases in this room that I'm looking at you now. Just, yeah, you know, you're just always living out of a suitcase, you know. Yeah. Well, um, do you know what? I'm a year now not flying, almost a year, and yeah. I've still got two identical bags below the stairs with identical bits of gear in it. You know, shirts, pants, socks. Yeah. Because that's so what I did. Bag. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. it was it was always like that, which is quite funny. It, it's going to be interesting to see how not only the airline industry survives all this, but how we all change and, and, and adapt. It's, for example, for, for Zoom, for me, has is, is changed how I will certainly interact with yeah. people. In the first instance, I, I, you know, not, not, I wouldn't like to do all, all my business via Zoom. I think it's a great opportunity to, to, for me to take conversations to a point where, okay, now, now let's get together and have a chat. Uh, I think I said to you in, in the summer, I mean, I worked from the yacht for weeks, six, five, six weeks. And all I had with me was my laptop and I bought a couple of, you know, Turkish SIM cards and, and a good dongle. And I was able to communicate every single day. I did Zoom calls from the yacht. I was, I did all my phone calls. I didn't have to put any out of hours emails, nothing like that. I just carried on as normal, yeah. beautiful environment yeah. to work from, but it yeah. worked, and I think a lot of us will take a bit of heed from that and go, you know, let's slow things down. or You know, we don't have to travel yeah. to do X, yeah. Y, or Z. Yeah. And that's bound to going to have a knock-on effect in the airline industry. Yeah, so that's that's the worry, and it's it's a little bit of an unknown at the minute. I mean, on, on, you're absolutely right. Unquestionably, this is a new normal. It is mm. a new way of working, um, and I think a lot of people have realized. That said... There will always be a demand, um, you know, to quote you, in the first instance, it serves a mm -hmm. purpose. So there will still be a demand for travel. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the, certainly within the, the training department, one of our concerns is that we go from, you know, we went from uh, boom to bust overnight. Everything stopped. Yeah. And there was just no flying. We're kind of worried now if the opposite might be true in that when, you know, if more and more air corridors uh, open up and the vac vaccine gets rolled out, that there might be such a sudden spike in demand that we can't actually deliver the program yeah. because we haven't got enough pilots. 
So we need to make sure we've got enough pilots ready to go. So, and that, you know, whilst they might not be business travelers, I think yeah. there will be considerable uptake in the leisure travel because people have just been in lockdown for so long. We think, you know what, I don't care where I go. Uh, where I go, I just, I just want to go where or when I go. I just want to go somewhere. I was just talking to someone before uh, we came on. Uh, he just told me I'm, I'm booking a flight to Bali. I'm going in October. Mm-hmm. And I think there'll be millions of people doing exactly the same, as you say. Yeah. Just have yeah. had enough and I need that break. Bit of sun and a bit of time. Yeah. Off. Now, whether, that's, whether that's sustainable, whether it lasts, I don't know. You know, whenever, you know, the IATA, um, one of the sort of governing bodies of the industry, predict that, you know, the new norm will be 80%. Okay. Uh, at least they, they did it. It sort of towards the start of COVID, that was their their estimation that you know when this is all over, people, when the dust settles, the industry will be about eighty yeah. percent. You yeah. know, one of the governing bodies uh, for the industry have said that uh, they expect the new norm to be around about eighty percent mm-hmm. of, of where we were. Um, I think we've probably passed that already, given that you know airlines like Flybe um, have gone under. Um, you know, Norwegian yeah. has collapsed. Um, Norwegian you know, collapsed. I didn't realise that. Yeah, well, certainly they've got various franchises, uh, but certainly um, um, I think they've got ninety-five percent of it is all but gone. There's a very, very small bit of it left uh, under their Norwegian certificate. Mm-hmm. Um, don't quote me that. So you know, no, no. A, a substantial size of the industry has already disappeared, and you know, we had to let uh, over three hundred pilots go. Unfortunately, That's a lot. so. It is so. Maybe we've maybe we've uh, gone past eighty percent already. I don't know. So we might see you know a little bit of um, uh, you know we, we'll have to, as I say, get pilots trained up and, and get ready. It's just if it if it goes back closer to ninety or even hundred percent, you know, a lot of people might get caught out and think, oh crap, we suddenly don't have the resource ready to go. A bit like Ryanair when they give their pilots a holiday. Uh, yes, exactly that. Exactly <laughs> that. So somebody somewhere got their maths very wrong, yeah, and then they yeah. were they were caught with their trousers down and no nobody to fly the airplane. So you know they were too ruthless. I think we'll uh, wrap it up now, David. And it's really good to talk to you. And thank you very much for your time. I have to say it's been educational for me, and I hope others maybe learn a thing or two. Um, you know, <laughs> well, I, I mean, thank it, you for me. yeah, it's it's just like sitting chatting to an old friend. That's what it's all about. <laughs> and, and you are an old friend and you know we're bound together in, in, in a band I think once in a band always in a band you know <laughs> absolutely so and, uh, have we worked out the reunion tour yet yeah yeah we'll have to work those out I'm, I'm working on the t-shirts we'll come, at the we'll minute come back to <laughs> but uh, next time you, you fly back to Ireland give us a shout and we'll uh, have a chat yeah, and be good to catch up are. yep alright David all the best and uh, alright yeah cheers stay on. safe